Well, thank you very much for coming. And today we consider three important and related subjects. The creator is being revealed through what was created, just as an artist reveals a bit of themselves in their collected works. And whenever we speak of God, we are forced to use analogies of human experience. They are anthropomorphisms. It is, only, it is the only way we can speak of God, and no analogy is perfect. It has been said that whatever, whenever we say God is such and such, we should immediately add, but of course, he is not. And even the use of the word he in reference to God is an anthropomorphism. Perhaps the most important and fundamental thing that God did was create. And hopefully, we will begin to appreciate that through these talks today. To set the atmosphere for what, I, what we are about to attempt, I would like to quote Gilbert Keith Chesterton. He said that there are two kinds of people in the world today, progressives and conservatives. And the progressives are, are willing to go through life making mistakes. And the conservatives are those who are determined to prevent anyone from correcting those mistakes. And what Chesterton said can apply at times to scientists and theologians, but it's the theologians who are more on the conservative side. On each side of this slide of this first talk, there is a timeline. It is a timeline of how we came to understand why there is something and not nothing. It defines the question of creation. You have a handout and, uh, with the timeline on the second page. We will discover a parade of fascinating people. This growth of understanding is a human adventure. It will outline our understanding of how we got from the moment of creation until today. The, the act of creation marked the beginning of time and it delineated what we call place. So let's begin with creation. Again, these are three closely related subjects. Genesis 1 tells us about creation. Genesis 2-3 tells us about the origin of original sin, and the New Testament tells us how original sin was overcome. The word evolution never appears in the Bible. So what else is there to say? Well, I think we may find a few things we can talk about. In the secular society in which we live, science is as interested in creation as is philosophy, and as theology should be. And when is the last time you heard a homily on creation? Science appears to be much more interested in creation. To prove that, let's start with physical creation. This is an aerial view of the CERN laboratory, the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, and the outline is 27 miles, uh, excuse me, 27 kilometers or 16.7 miles in circumference. 
175 meters or 574 feet underground. It has to be the largest scientific instrument ever built by humankind. This is one of the four detector areas in the ring. It investigates a wide range of physics from the search of the Higgs boson to extra dimensions and particles that could make up dark matter. Yes, that's a man standing in the lower center of the picture. The Higgs boson, sometimes called the God particle, is an elementary particle which has mass arising from a quantum excitation of the Higgs field which exists everywhere in the universe. And I promise, not too much more physics speak. <laughs> Thousands of scientists from 38 countries and 174 institutions are working at the Large Hadron Collider. One cannot blame the theologian for having a bit of instrument envy, but I'm getting ahead of myself. As we begin, I must explain that it may seem that I'm dwelling on scientific explanations. To understand the act of creation, one must appreciate what was created. This does not mean using equations. Scientific explanations can be just as imaginative and metaphorical as theology. Scientific terms such as Big Bang, black holes, or string theory are imaginative in the extreme. Creation should be even more important to theology. Theology is about the creator. While we will never adequately understand creation, we must appreciate it. It is not just the first thing that happened, the beginning of time and place. It is the foundation of all that followed and the key to understanding what followed. Our understanding has evolved from prehistoric view through myths and anthropomorphic scenarios to the best current insights involving scientific research. The Creator is not playing with the universe. The Creator is involved with it and serious about it, and so should we be. We've seen the Large Hadron Collider. We've seen images of the surface of planets taken from robotic explorers on their surface. And what do the theologians have in their arsenal? In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, now don't undersell this. This is the beginning of the timeline. Genesis 1 is what one human culture concluded some 4,000 years ago about our origin. Society at the time was maybe 99% illiterate and they were physically hard times of nomadic existence with many pagan, with many pagan ideas passing around. But our origin was not the survival issue for that age. It was having food all year long, protection from neighbors and natural hardships. Their interest was not why is there something and not nothing, but why is there so much evil in the world and why is life so hard? And we're still asking those questions. The, myth, the Genesis myth is not about creation. 
It is about organizing, separating, and populating stuff that already exists. It is an effective memory aid. The first three days, there's separating and organizing light from darkness, water above from waters below, and the waters below from dry land. And in the second three days, you populate what was separated in the first three. Illuminaries of the day and night, birds of the air, fish of the water, and animals and humankind, male and female. These are grand anthropomorphisms. The, in the, for example, six times each sixth day ends up with, excuse me, in the sixth day, we hear, let us make mankind. As if God was a, a tribal leader consulting with his, his advisors, and then they decide, well, let's make mankind. And the biggest anthropomorphism on the seventh day, he needed to rest. But the myth is not the revelation. Jean Donnellu, in his book, God and the Ways of Knowledge, points out that God has spoken and speaks to us through creation, his handiwork, the spirit, his image, the prophets, and his son. All this constitutes revelation. But what is the creation revelation in Genesis? Well, it tells us that it had a benign cause, not one done out of anger or spite, as some of the pagan accounts suggested. For our benefit, God provided a garden for the first human beings. And what was created was very good. And six times that point is made in the, in the myth. Certainly it wasn't evil, not physically, spiritually, socially, or in any other way. Science tells us the what and the how. Theology tells us the why and the value. Scientific understandings are discovered using instruments and explained using data they collect and logical reasoning. Theology starts with a revelation contained in writings which we consider inspired by God because of the character and the value of what they say things we would otherwise not know about the Creator or our relationship with that Creator. These ideas are explained and expanded using philosophy and right reason. We must not be simplistic about that revelation. History shows only too well how many different and contradictory conclusions can be drawn from the sacred text. I remember seeing a cartoon showing the chief devil sitting on his throne addressing the graduation class from devil's school and he is telling them, now remember, quote a lot of scripture. We will, we will insist here today that theology could and should be used more. Excuse me. We will insist today that theology could and should be using science. Written revelation has ended, so natural science is all that is left from which we can draw new ideas and logical paths. Revelation is not describing the world, it is interpreting it. The Creator is leaving the thrill of discovery of physical world around us to our own intellectual curiosity, and that is a great gift.
We say that an architect built a particular building, but he submitted his drawings to engineers who made specifications to ensure that the building was structurally sound, and then an army of tradesmen executed the plans. It is in this sense that we speak of God creating the world or humanity. God designed the nature of the material out of which the universe and humankind are made. The tradesmen and laborers, if you will, who actually did the work are the natural laws and energy which these physical elements infallibly possess and obey without exception. It was 1700 years after Genesis before there was any recorded development in the human understanding of what was created. Plato laid the foundation for Western philosophy and science, such as it was. He raised the question of soul and immortality, afterlife, but not, but not as we might define them today. His thinking influenced Christian thinking through St. Augustine, who was greatly influenced by him. Aristotle, a student of Plato, was a Greek philosopher and scientist. He saw natural philosophy as a branch of philosophy which examined the natural world, but not empirically. He maintained that an intelligent man could arrive at the truth solely through philosophical principles, a qualitative but not quantitative pursuit. It wasn't until the 6th century AD that scientists began applying mathematics to the physical sciences, and Aristotle's work was inadequate. He lacked basic concepts such as mass, math, philosophy, force, and temperature. Furthermore, he espoused an Earth-centered universe, and this was the thinking of scholars until the 16th century. He further maintained that the heavenly bodies had no similarity to the earth. After all, the earth didn't glow, and those heavenly bodies do. At year zero, I place the incarnation, the physical event. Jesus, the birth of Jesus, gave us the revelation that was sensible, detectable to human eyes and history. We will consider the meaning and the impact of the Incarnation and develop this in the third talk on Original Sin. Here, we propose the Incarnation as divine revelation. It defines the timeline. The question of the date of the New Testament can be attributed to St. Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria in 367, or to the Council of Trent in 1546, but let's not put it there. I include here two items to put them in the context of the timeline. They are not part of the history of our understanding of creation, but they are essential in our discussion of original sin. Carthage declared, for example, that the relationship of sin to physical death, it declared that human beings would never have been subject to physical death had not Adam committed original sin. And if you do not believe that, you are anathema, according to Carthage. The question arose because of the British monk Pelagius, who died in 420. He taught that human beings can, 
without the grace of God, achieves supernatural salvation. Augustine was convinced that grace was a free gift of God and necessary for salvation. He stressed the damage done by human, to human nature by original sin, which resulted in a lack of ability to fulfill the will of God without God's grace, whatever the meaning of that grace. He had a major influence on Christian theology with his championing of the doctrine of original sin. 2,400 years from Genesis to Augustine, and for 1,100 years after Augustine, there was still no progress in our understanding of the natural world or its theological implications. St. Thomas Christianized Aristotelian philosophy. Then things started to come into question with Copernicus. From the time of Aristotle to Copernicus, the academic world and the Catholic Church were more interested in philosophy and spirituality than physical science as we understand it today. Copernicus was a polymath, mathematician, astronomer, canon lawyer, physicist, linguist. In his book, De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium, he offered a well-thought-out theory but lacked definitive data and was much too radical. A commentator even added a preface to his printed text proposing that there were other hypotheses one might choose. He was trying to head off those who might be offended by the theory. The theory, of course, was that the sun and not the earth was at the center of the universe. Meaning, of course, the solar system. The final effect of Copernicus has been described this way. Later, the system of Copernicus, incompatible at heart with the anthropocentric and moralistic view of the world which Christianity implies, was accepted by the church with some lame attempt to render it innocuous. It remains an alien and hostile element like a spent bullet lodged in the flesh. Those are the words of George Santignana in 1913 in his book, The Winds of Doctrine. In the mid-1500s, the church had other fish to fry, what with Luther and the Council of Trent, which was called to deal with the reformers. These served to distract everyone for a time from the question of a geocentric universe. Over the next 70 years, there were three influential players in the progress of scientific understanding and methods. Tycho Brahe was a Danish astronomer. I cannot resist that image. <laughs> this is an actor playing the role of Tycho. His biggest virtue was his thirst for accuracy, and his vices were drinking and irascibility. He made exacting measurements of the relative positions of the planets and stars, all done without a, micro, uh, without a telescope. This data was essential to Kepler's determination of the laws of motion of planets. But what's with that shiny nose? Well, he lost his nose in a duel, and so he had some artificial noses made. One of them was made out of brass. The Danish king, Frederick II, had 
granted Tycho an estate on the island of Venn to pursue astronomy. The new king, Christian IV, in 1597 needed money badly and so inspected Tycho's island to see where that money was going. As he opened the door to another, to another room, Tycho's dog, Lep the Oracle, was standing in the way and Christian kicked him aside and Tycho told him in no uncertain terms what he thought of that. The result was Tycho went into exile. Fortunately, the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II invited him to Prague where he became the official imperial astronomer. There, from 1600 to his death in 1601, he was assisted by Johannes Kepler. But first, Francis Bacon, philosopher, scientist, statesman, jurist, orator, and author. He is considered to be the father of empiricism. He recommended inductive reasoning as the best approach of science, which should be executed with a degree of a skepticism so that scientists don't deceive themselves. His empiricism may have been his undoing. While riding in a carriage in North London one cold March day, he wondered about the ability of cold for the preserving of meat. And he stopped the carriage, purchased a chicken, and stuffed it with snow. He contracted a, he contracted a chill in April and died of bronchitis. <laughs> Johannes Kepler was extremely intelligent, intelligent, but of poor health. He started in the seminary, but was so bright that he became unpopular with his peers. As we used to say when I was in the seminary, well, you know how it is, the good leave, the smart die, and here we are. <laughs> Kepler became an astronomer and a mathematician. In 1600, humble, humble Kepler met flamboyant Brahe. Kepler was a mystic about numbers. Tycho asked him to study the planetary orbits using the data from Venn. He tried to match the orbital periods with the Pythagorean musical theorems, the harmony of the spheres. Soon he acquired a great respect for the accuracy of Tycho's data, but things did not work out. He trusted the data and not the other assumptions. Tradition insisted that the orbits of planets were perfect circles. After all, they were established by God. He decided to try elliptical orbits, and everything fell into place. I list Galileo's birth and death on the timeline. Notice the people during his lifetime. Galileo was the beneficiary of their thinking. Galileo was an Italian polymath, astronomer, physicist, engineer, philosopher, mathematician. He worked on things like the theory of tides, heliocentrism, the pendulum and periodic motion, balances, gravity, and thermometers. And if truth be known, he seemed to enjoy very much a bit of controversy. He built a workable telescope and sold them to the leaders of Venice to spot the approach of enemy ships earlier than the native eye could. In 1610, he published his Siderius Nuncius, or the messenger from the stars. 
he discovered that Jupiter had four moons orbiting it and became more convinced of the Copernican dis uh, proposal. Here were heavenly bodies going around something else other than the earth. His adventure with the church was a lively one, which we cannot go into here. In 1633, he was found by the Roman Inquisition guilty of teaching the Copernican system, which by this time had been condemned. It, was an, it wasn't until 1992 that he was rehabilitated by the church. For Descartes, reason and mathematics were the tools for determining truth, and he began with the systematic doubt of everything. This was motivated in no small amount by the knowledge that everyone had been wrong in thinking that the earth was at the center of the universe. He described this approach in his discourse on the method of rightly conducting the reason and seeking truth in science, published in 1637. His first philosophical principle is that in order to seek truth, it is necessary once in the course of our life to doubt as far as possible all things. And his seventh principle is that we cannot doubt our own existence while we doubt, and that this is the first knowledge we acquire when we philosophize in order. In other words, to doubt demands the existence of the doubter. This is the origin of his widely known utterance, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, although he originally wrote it in French so that it could have a wider audience. Descartes established a philosophical basis and atmosphere for the Age of Enlightenment. I recommend a book called Descartes' Bones, A Skeletal History of the Conflict Between Faith and Reason. It's written by Richard Shorto. It's both informative and entertaining, and I rank it right up there with Davos Sobel's Longitude. The next step in our understanding of, in understanding creation was brought about by Isaac Newton. He drew extensively from Descartes. He, he was a complex person and a loner. He could also be very unpleasant and of a defensive man. His association with the Royal Society in London and later as its president attracted much esteem to that institution. But he also abused his power, especially in his treatment of Robert Hooke, in part over the disagreement on the nature of light and the number of other issues. This aspect of his career makes for uncomfortable reading. Newton argued that light is composed of particles or corpuscles. Others, including Robert Hooke, proposed that light was a wave to account for the interference patterns and the phenomenon of diffraction. Today we use quantum mechanics, photons, and the idea of wave-particle duality to understand light. Newton's understanding of orbital motion demanded that he depart from Aristotle's notion that the heavenly bodies were not the same stuff as the Earth. By using the third law of Kepler, he, he could eliminate time in his orbital equations and express the force holding the planets in orbit in terms of their mass and the distance of separation. Thus, 
he defined the universal force of gravity. This confirmation of the heliocentric universe through mathematics contributed to the spirit of the Age of Enlightenment. Whenever I think of the Age of Enlightenment, I think of this statue, which is in a town square in Leuven in Belgium, that wonderful Catholic university city, a university formed in 425. The name of the statue is Fonska, probably a contraction of Fons Sapientia, in which the student is pouring, reading diligently and pouring wisdom into his mind. The Age of Enlightenment is generally considered that period between 1715, with the death of Louis XIV, and 1793, and the execution of Louis XVI. Descartes insisted on doubts and scientific proofs. Scholars began to ask, how many other things do we have wrong besides the sun being at the center? Proofs were demanded concerning science, mathematics, government, economics, and religion. In science, now there was experimentation. In mathemat mathematics was developing rapidly in the 17th and 18th centuries. All the major names are there. Napier, Descartes, Pascal, Fermat, Leibniz, Newton, Bernoulli. In government, Adams, uh, we eliminated the notion of divine right of kings. In economics, Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations in 1776, espousing a laissez-faire economics. And in religion? Well, these were difficult times for the church, which seemed more interested in protecting tradition, traditional thinking and its authority than in investigating how traditions could be updated. The protesters advocated the vernacular Bible, a la Luther, and, public, and biblical studies began to develop new tools of interpretation and higher criticism. On 18 November 1893, Pope Leo XIII issued Providentissimus Deus, challenging the historical critical methods and prohibiting Catholic scholars from using them. Then, on September 30, 1943, Pope Pius XII issued Divino Aflante Spiritu, which Raymond Brown called the Magna Carta for, for scripture scholars, approving the use of these new tools. It takes an astonishing amount of pride and arrogance to claim that what we know, what we now know, owns the future. And that right now we have all that we need to know and understand and value about human existence. We must include on our timeline here Charles Darwin, who died in 1882. Clearly, he is a major player in the understanding of creation in its biological phase. And we will consider that in the next talk. We include him here to set his contribution into the historical perspective. In 1870, the First Vatican Council defined infallibility of the Church, which certainly is not in the spirit of the Enlightenment. What was needed, and is always needed, is new insights. Unfortunately, the Church preferred to be constantly on the lookout for heresy. 150 years after the close of the, of the Enlightenment, P. 
Pierre Teilhard de Chardin appeared on the scene, a Jesuit priest, theologian, philosopher, and, science, and scientist who appreciated the theological aspects of creation. As we said, science tells us the what and the how. Now it was time to look at the why. A first major step was taken by Teilhard. He can be thought of as the Galileo of theology. His ideas about the universe were ahead of their time and the church did not want to deal with him. As in the Galileo affair, the final, in the final analysis, the objection was not theological, but a concern for a loss of authority and possible criticism. Teilhard took an evolutionary view of the universe and the nature of Homo sapiens, and the church was not ready to do that. In fact, Rome refused to allow him to publish or teach his ideas. His many writings were not published until after his death. He had entrusted them to friends who saw to their publication, things like The Phenomenon of Man, Divine Milieu, The Heart of Matter, and Christianity in evolution and Evolution. As you notice, he died the same year as Albert Einstein. The traditional concept of creation in Genesis was not creation. It was separation and population of things which already existed, making order out of chaos, all so very anthropomorphic. God whipping up a huge model of the universe and responsible for every detail. Ted Hughes, in his Tales from Ovid, his translation of Ovid's Metamorphosis, beautifully describes the situation before creation. He says, quote, Before the sea or land, before even sky which contains all, nature wore only one mask, since called chaos. A huge agglomeration of upset, a bolus of everything, but as if aborted. And Ovid goes on, God, or some such artist as resourceful, began to sort it out, land here, sky there, sea there. This is a wonderful read, and begins with these words about creation and concludes that the earth, quote, was, ador was adorned with the godlike novelty of man. Ovid died in the year 17 or 18. And so in the traditional concept of creation, God can, and in a sense, did need to create. Create individual beings instantaneously and as often as he pleased. I say needed to because in this story, he must act as a human would act. The culture of the time knew no other way. This is creationism. It is the modus operandi of Genesis and was not questioned until the 19th century. Tayard offers another scenario which draws from the best science of the day, clear philosophical reasoning and useful theological insights. Here is Tayard's proposal for creation. The object of creation is a universe. It happened only once, and it was achieved through evolution. 
The object of creation is a universe, not a series of haphazard choices resulting in some conflicting elements which allow evil actions. There is a unity, a oneness to the universe. It is the reason there is something and not nothing. It happened only once. Creation is a single creative act with such potential that everything followed out of natural necessity in a, major, in a manner instilled by the Creator. The possibilities were limited by the, in the sense that the Creator had no choice about evolution. The potential was always there and would emerge, happen, exist, whenever the conditions were right, and those conditions depended very much on growing complexity, as we will see later. Finally, creation is achieved by evolution. This is a point which can assist us in understanding evil. It implies that God not only created through evolution, but could not create except through evolution. And this makes it a single and continuous flow of the nature and potential of created substance. This is a compelling philosophical concept which can also explain the mysterious connection between matter and spirit. We will consider this further in our subsequent talks when we look for an evolutionary explanation of evil. Now these are fruitful thoughts to augment and advance our image of God. Creation in, is the origination of substance with all its potential, both physical and spiritual. Teilhard goes on to develop this in conjunction with the Incarnation and making creation Christ-centered. Yet being an accomplished scientist, he was able to speak of the divine and the material world together. And what were the reactions to Teilhard? Well, let's start with the church. <coughs> Teilhard was very much ahead of his time. Churchmen were, and I must add, are not ready for that science in some cases. He exposed past thinking, especially original sin, by advocating evolution. And churchmen were not ready to rethink anything, especially from a scientific point of view. His thinking challenged authority. Although he was completely obedient, but he didn't need, we didn't need authority. We needed open investigation. He was forbidden to teach and publish. As in the case of Galileo, the, the issue was authority, not theology. For centuries, the church had been teaching that the first humans were plunked down on the earth, free from concubiscence and death, committed a sin, and thus lost both these attributes. The confirmation of this teaching was a literal reading of a document written some 3,500 years before there was any empirical science to explain how nature could have accomplished the existence of Homo sapiens without an ad hoc creative act of God. What is more, the story of the fall was in the context of explaining why there is so much frustrating evil in the world 
and not explaining the origin of humanity. Theology had never considered any alternative to original sin. Ultimately, as a way of sidelining him, his Jesuit superiors sent him to China. To me, this is a proof that there is a God. <laughs> Tyard became involved in the study of the Peking man, a group of bones and stone tools estimated to be between 500,000 and 300,000 years old. And in 1934, he directed that research. And what was the reaction of the scientific community to Tyard? I attended a Gresham College short symposium on creation some years ago with a panel of four scientists. In the question period, I asked if Tyard's three stages of creation fits into the scientific evidence. The moderator of the panel quoted Peter Medawar and nothing more. I did not expect this from a moderator of his stature, and the others on the panel had never even heard of Tyard. Now, Peter Medawar was a British biologist and immunologist who shared the 1960 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine and wrote a scornful review of the book Phenomenon of Man for the journal Mind, and he said, quote, this author can be excused of dishonesty only on the grounds that before deceiving others, he had taken great pains to deceive himself. This must be the most cynical but eloquent ad hominem argument ever written. But we also know that ad hominem argumentation is only used by those who cannot attack, attack the reasoning of a person and so attack the person themselves. A couple of years ago, E.O. Wilson, an American biologist, researcher, theorist, naturalist, and author, gave a lecture at St. Paul's here in London concerning his book, The Creation, An Appeal to Saving Life on Earth. I asked him the same question about Tyard's triple components of creation. The moderator had announced that three questions would be taken at a time. While the second person was asking her question, Wilson jumped in with an emphatic, no, Tyard's thinking was irrelevant. I, la I later, and the moderator with me, wondered why it seemed so sensitive an issue with him. How could any scientist disagree with Tyard's notion of creation? He was agreeing that there was one Big Bang, and evolution is its operative mechanism from that moment on. What is there to disagree with? Well, those who have heard of Tyard know that he went on to derive also a spiritual existence as a result of evolution, and that many scientists do not want to contemplate. It seems that most scientists today are as disinterested in and ignorant of the, the recent scholarship on sin-fall tradition as, unfortunately, many in the church are. Georges Lemaitre was a priest, astronomer, and physicist who taught at that Catholic university in Leuven. In 1927, he published a paper on an expanding universe. He was the first to derive what is now known as Hubble's 
law and made the first quantitative estimation of the Hubble constant, which he published two years before Hubble's paper. In 1931, he proposed that the universe expanded from a single point, a primal atom. Fred Hoyle was a British astronomer and eventually director of the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge. He advocated a steady state universe with constant matter density instead of an exploding one. In 1949, on the BBC, he called Lemaitre's proposal the Big Bang, and it stuck. He meant it as a term of derision, but it was a very appropriate term. Lemaitre's theory was much more convincing. In much the same way Genesis 1 was appealing when I was taught it in primary school religious instructions, Tyard's thinking turned out to be much more convincing as well as appealing. Unfortunately, it was not until his death that anyone had a chance to read him. So what was the nature of the creative act? In the distance past, Aristotle believed that the universe always existed. This avoided the question of how it got started. Others chose to believe that it did have a beginning and this required a God to get it started. Stephen Hawking in his book, The Grand Design states, quote, because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. To reach this conclusion, Hawking had to travel an extremely complex path, involving the negative energy of gravity, the positive energy of particles, Einstein's theory of relativity, quantum theory, and what is called Feynman's sum over histories. It is a grand tour, but not one traveled by many, and not everyone familiar with the concepts involved can follow it. At times, I get the impression that Hawking is forced to be philosophical while protesting that he is not. He does say, quote, traditionally, these are questions of philosophy, but philosophy is dead. It cannot keep up with modern developments in science, particularly physics, close quote. He has obviously not read Bernard Despagnat's book on physics and philosophy, which helped him win the one million pound Templeton Prize in 2009. The Templeton Prize honors a living person who has made an exceptional contribution to affirming life's spiritual dimensions. And it has always contrived to be just a little bit more than the Nobel Prize. In summary, Genesis gave us a mystical, a mythical six days of creation. Aristotle maintained that matter always existed and this was the assumed dogma until the 19th century. Copernicus and others proposed a sun-centered solar system. Galileo and Newton offered observational and mathematical proofs for that. The Age of Enlightenment questioned everything and Teilhard Chardin worked out a theological understanding of creation. And what is the situation 
today. Today in 2018, it is perhaps best described as mixed opinion involving spiritualistic dualism, which requires a constant involving, involvement of God, creationism, a spectrum of beliefs and theories, at best concluding that evolution is okay for material nature, but definitely not humanity. The scientific secularism, which thinks that there is nothing spiritual, and the recognition of spiritual entities as natural in the case of Homo sapiens. We will try to indicate in the following talks, what we will indicate in the following talks is that the, that the human spirit is a product of natural evolution. And this is a better fit to what we are learning about the created universe, which includes us as human persons. Creation is how the Creator worked, does things. Shouldn't our image of God draw from our best and most complete understanding of that? Shouldn't our relationship with the Creator fit the Creator's method of doing things? Evolution was clearly the Creator's method of choice. What then is the non-creationist's image of God? It proposes that there, that there was a true creator of all things, not making or fabricating them as our creed repeats at Mass, saying that God is the maker of heaven and earth. Why doesn't it say creator? <clears throat> the creator is not a capricious, capricious maker. Evolution ends up bringing into being things that are naturally possible. The term Almighty God is an accurate description. Creation was certainly one almighty event. The act of creation created every potential in one event. Evolution is what brings all that potential to fruition. Best of all, creation endowed created beings with the capacity not only to be but to know and to love, which is the essence of the Trinity. It is important to understand creation. With all my interest in science, it has never tempted me to, sub to suspect that there is or was no creator. It has never shaken my faith. But what has shaken it is the view I take of many anthropomorphic religious practices and how they detract from what must be the true nature and character of the Creator. I long ago concluded that theological students should be required to take a course in astronomy. Then, when one has an appreciation for the size and wonder of the Big Bang and what has happened over the last 13.8 billion years since, how can that creator be interested in such things as the way I grow my beard, cover my hair or face, abstain from eating meat on Friday, am circumcised, much less honor killings, holy wars or inquisitions? 
These are signs of an extremely narrow focus on superficial things in a limited range of personal life. To the traditionalist, creation is a series of optional events and actions performed ad hoc by an all-powerful God. <clears throat> to the evolutionist, creation is a series of necessary events controlled by the nature of what was brought into existence in a single creative act. Notice the symmetry in that timeline. 2,000 years from Genesis to the Incarnation, and 2,000 years more to the present. We have benefited from the Enlightenment and the empirical natural sciences. Notice how far back the story of Genesis is from the perspective of today and how much we have learned relatively recently. I would like to end with four lines of a poem called Hymn to Matter by Tyard. I list here the last line. The four lines, the four verses are in the handout. Blessed are you, harsh matter, barren soil, stubborn rock. You who yield only to violence, you who force us to work if we would eat. Blessed are you, perilous matter, violent sea, untamable passion, you who, unless we fetter you, will devour us. Blessed are you, mighty matter, irresistible march of evolution, reality ever newborn. You who, by constantly shattering our mental categories, force us to go ever further and further in our pursuit of truth. Blessed are you, universal matter, immeasurable time, boundless ether, triple abyss of stars and atoms and generations. You who, by overflowing and dissolving our narrow standards of measurement, reveal to us the dimensions of God. This would be such a beautiful verse to use in a mass celebrating God the Creator, but we have no such feast. It is this is Tyar's view of the universe. In that last line, triple abyss of stars, the cosmos, and atoms, particle physics, and generations, biology, and the noosphere, which leads us to the next talk on biological evolution. <laughs>